welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own stories. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. So today we are going to start tackling biblical poetry. So just a reminder here about what season two is all about. I'm hoping to give you the tools and the exposure of biblical literature types for the purpose of you being able to identify what you're reading during your own Bible study time. Being able to identify the literature that we're reading helps us see it rightly, and therefore we will see Jesus rightly. Being able to identify it helps us read it correctly. Taking biblical poetry literally can be really tricky. We can create images of God's character that are just plain wrong. So today we're going to focus on identifying biblical poetry, some basics on how to read it, and some pitfalls to avoid. Some theologians actually ascribe up to 30% of the Bible as being in poetry form or having poetical language. So if you're hoping to avoid poetry altogether, bad luck. Sorry. So there are some books. The whole thing is written in poetry. And those are going to be books like the Psalms. And we're going to talk about Psalms and wisdom literature next week, because they are treated differently. They're a very different kind of poetry. Now, also the Song of Solomon's, the wisdom literature, Job, Ecclesiastes, and a lot of the minor prophets. Those are all written in pure poetry form. The whole thing is a metaphor, a simile, rich with imagery and symbolism. The rest of poetry is actually woven throughout. So let's take a look at what we've already done the last couple of weeks, that nativity story. In that narrative, there are a couple of poems. So in Luke chapter one, Mary actually has a psalm of praise, and it's written in the form of poetry. The best analogy I have for this are those Disney movies or musicals where the story is being told in normal dialogue, events are being told. And then all of a sudden, someone breaks out in song. <laughs> I used to really hate these when I was little. I didn't understand why everybody was singing all the time. But that song helps you see that there is a difference in the way that the story is being told. It no longer is just facts and here's what happened and here are the events like a narrative. But you're trying to connect to the character in a dramatic and emotional way. And music is a great way to do that. It kind of helps you do that faster. So poetry is just like that. Whenever you see something change in your literature, it's just like whenever you hear someone break out in song in a movie or a play, you know that something different is happening. This is when I really recommend having a paper and ink real Bible, a tangible Bible, because sometimes the mobile versions on your phone or your tablet is just not going to give you the same visual cues as your real Bible with pages that you can turn to. So it doesn't mean that those apps aren't great. They're definitely a tool worth having, but a literal Bible can be really beneficial in being able to identify when there are changes in literature. So let's turn to Luke chapter one. 
So Mary, mother of Jesus, has this song of praise that starts in verse 46 through verse 55. Now, the previous 45 verses in Luke chapter one are narrative, and you should see in your Bible a very normal kind of recognizable form of literature. So that means that all the text is bumped over to the left margin, and we read in English from left to right, top to bottom. So it has that kind of everything shoved over to the left. Now, when you get to where verse 46 starts, and Mary said, now you can physically see that there's a change in the literature. So right at the beginning, there are quotation marks, and the indentions are more like where the text is in the center of the page instead of aligned to the left margin. At the end of the text, there's a space between verse 55 and 56. And depending on your Bible, mine is the very next page. Zachariah's prophecy is the same way. It's offset. So you can literally see that there's a change in the text. And that's a really good indication that it's being written in a different form. It may seem really simple that this observation is like a duh, I know that, but you would be amazed how often we overlook the most simplest things, especially for people I have found who have been in the church their whole life, because we've read through this. That's one of the reasons I wanted to use the nativity story for a narrative, because we know the story. So we stop reading it. We stop picking up our Bible and opening those pages because we think we know the story. I had an amazing conversation with my kids during Advent about the flood. And I was like, no, it's this way. And we looked it up and I was totally wrong. I had remembered it because of all the movies and all the other influences that have shaped my idea of what that narrative was. And it'd been a long time since I just opened the Bible and read the words on the page. These simple observations build the muscle memory where you're going to notice there's a change in the literature and you're going to make note of that and read it differently. It's just like whenever you're watching a movie and somebody breaks out into song, you know that something different is going on. And how often is it the songs that we actually remember from the movie? from the play, from whatever it is that we're watching. It's those things set to a rhythm that we remember. That brings me to my second point about identifying poetry. So ancient Hebrew poetry is very different from what we would probably consider poetry in our modern Western culture. So when you think of poetry in the English language, you might think of Shakespeare, Maya Angelou, Robert Frost. Now those people have very particular styles about their poetry. Shakespeare is written in a very particular kind of rhythm. It's called iambic pentameter. It has a da-dee-da-dee-da-dee. It has a very particular rhythm to it that you can recognize as Shakespeare. And Maya Angelou and even Robert Frost, there's a lot of rhyming where the words themselves are put next to each other in a certain way to give you that rhythm that ends with alliteration or rhyming or things like that. Now, ancient Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily rely on the words. Ancient Hebrew poetry is more about the meaning or the themes. And so they have the, that parallelism where they'll stack 
idea next to another idea where we would stack a word next to another word that's going to rhyme. And so ancient Hebrew poetry is just a little bit different where it's the themes and the ideas that are important and set to a rhythm, not necessarily the words. Okay, so now we have identified the poetry. We know the particular books and how to find it within prophecy and narrative with offset indentions and quotations. And when it says, like in Daniel, he had a vision. In Luke, when it says Mary said, and it's offset with quotations, Zechariah prophesied. These are all indicators that you're reading a different form of literature. So now that we know that we're reading something different, how do we read it? What do we do with it? The first thing that we need to do with poetry is slow down. (laughs) Poetry uses imagery and it uses different literary devices like metaphors and symbolism. And that means it's not telling you outright what it is. So it's going to take a little extra intention to understand what it's talking about. So for example, Psalm 18 verse 2 says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So this is a metaphor. It's saying that God is something, but these are all inanimate objects. And God is not an inanimate object. He is alive. He is an entity. He's a person we have a relationship with. He is not a rock, right? So what it's using is a literary device of a metaphor to create an image in your mind. So the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. These are all things on which you build a foundation, on which you have safety, on which you are saved. And so it's creating an image in your mind. So when you come across poetry, it's good to read the whole thing at first glance. So if you're going to spend some time studying Psalm 18, then read the whole Psalm. Read it in one sitting, read the whole thing, and then go back and start reading it slowly, verse by verse. And think about the themes and the images that are put within it, because that is a huge key to ancient Hebrew poetry. Images. These figures of speech, these metaphors are used in a way to create an image in your mind. And when you think of a rock, you think of dry ground. And for some people, that's going to have a connection back to the creation story, where there was chaos and waters that were dangerous and turbulent. And God brought dry ground out of that made a garden, a place of fortress, a place of security, a place where there was dry ground, like a rock, right? So we have this image in our mind in Psalms that connects to a theme, that God provides dry ground, and that's a place of safety. That's a refuge. That's a place where God can deliver you from the chaotic waters, whatever that may represent at your time. So now you've identified it and you've seen it, you slow down and you're looking for images and trying to tie those images to themes that you already know exist. These images and figures of speech 
we're meant for another culture. And so it is reasonable for us to take our time to slow down and to look into what those things mean. Even from our generations, images can mean very different things. There are words that were totally acceptable to say in 1940 that we absolutely would not say today. There are things that change over time and culture. So it's good to be aware that the full meaning is sometimes going to be hard for us to identify on first glance because it wasn't written for us and our culture. So now that we have identified it, we've learned to slow down and look for images. Now let's talk about some of those pitfalls that we can avoid. When reading biblical poetry, it's important to recognize that it is poetry, so we don't ascribe very legalistic views to poetic language. So for example, in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your substance and with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So this Proverbs is one of the scriptures that's used to promote what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel, which is the teaching that if you do well, if you honor God well, he will reward you. This is where it gets really tricky because God does take pleasure in rewarding those that he loves. But when we start to define what reward might mean, and particularly in our Western culture, that usually means money, we get into some real kind of messed up views about God. The ultimate goal is to be in community with him, that God is the goal, not money. And so when we do well by God, whenever we honor him, what we get is a relationship with him. But if you just look at this verse in Proverbs and take it as a literal, if I honor God, my barns will be full. Well, that's saying that you have multiple barns. So we're already talking about rich people to begin with. And this is more of a statement about what rich people should be doing, which is honoring God by giving their money away and helping the poor. And we know that that's important to God because we know the whole story that Jesus came and said, you know, take care of your widows, take care of the poor, that the law was written so that widows would not become destitute. So we see the character of God is for those who are poor and cannot take care of themselves. So it's important that when we're looking at these poetic language, we take them in stride versus God's character. What do we already know about God's character? What do we know about the way that he interacts with his people? And is this in line with that? Another pitfall for me and something I have to constantly remind myself is that I don't know everything. <laughs> this was the best lesson that I took away from reading Job. He went through so much suffering. And when he demanded an answer, God said, I will come and talk to you because I love you and I care about you. But you're not going to get an answer because I know more than you do. And that was good enough. And that was put into our Bible as, a, as an example to follow. We need to release control of knowing everything. And from a word nerd, that can be very difficult for myself. But for example, in Psalm 148, 
It's praising the name of the Lord. And it says, praise him, uh, angels and hosts, praise him, sun and moon and shining stars, praise him, highest heavens and waters. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Now, in our modern understanding of science and physics, the sun and the moon cannot sing out praises. But that is our definition of praise. We have no idea what is praise and what God takes as praise. Maybe there's something that the sun and the moon and the stars do that is praiseworthy to God that he can see in a totally different way and understand in a way that we're never going to. So when you read poetry, just remember that you don't know everything. That's the best advice I have for reading poetry is if it bothers you, if it doesn't make sense, write it down, make that observation, but then let it go. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will be so kind and faithful to reveal to you what you need to understand. And you can pray for peace about those things that you don't. You don't have to be in some sort of liturgy or literature elite. You don't have to have a degree to read poetry and understand it. There's nothing that keeps you from being with God. No height, nor depth, nor form of poetry. God is accessible to you. That's why Jesus came. And we have this word and it's a great tool. But pray over it. Take it to God. Be in relationship about him. Be in relationship with him. Say, I don't understand this. Can you please give me some wisdom or some clarification? And this is one of the reasons that I love studying in a group, because there are going to be people who are much better at the imagery, at these lofty languages of metaphor and similes. By the way, that's not me. (laughs) I'm really good with historical dates and facts. And so I am so grateful when I am in a Bible study with someone who loves the parables, who loves the Psalms, who feels all the feelings. One of my best friends has all the feelings. And I'm so grateful for her in my life because she sees things and reads the Bible in a way that I never could. And so together, we get to have a richer, deeper community and relationship with each other and with God because of how we're different and because there's narrative and there's poetry and you need both. A good resource and one of my favorite Bible study nerds is Tim Mackey. He's one of the co-creators of the Bible Project. They do all kinds of fun like little videos and summaries of the whole books of the Bible and they're on YouTube and I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that. But It's a resource that I've been using for a really long time, and they're theologically sound. But Tim Mackey has a quote about biblical poetry and narratives. Rich metaphors of biblical poetry are rooted in biblical narrative. You need the narratives to understand the poetic images, and the images reveal a deeper meaning in the narrative. So whether the narrative is boring or frustrating to you or the poems are boring and frustrating to you, lean into it and see how one makes the other even better. 
So hopefully you feel a little bit more qualified to tackle those poetic books in your Bible. So next week, we're going to talk about Psalms and the wisdom literature, because they're types of poetry that are very particular and can be really helpful in how you read them and how you view the themes that are running through the Bible. So that's next week. And then we're going to finish up poetry with talking about prophecy and apocalypse, those kind of end of the world, uh, Daniel and Revelation, so scary images. And what do we do with those? And why are, the, are those metaphors? Are there real creatures like that that exist somewhere? I don't know. So I am just scratching the surface on prophecy and apocalyptic literature myself. So we'll go on this journey together and it'll be great because we just need to start somewhere. And hopefully we can do that together. And hopefully you can take these things back to your community, maybe your local church or your Bible study and take that and make it richer and give you the tools and the community that you need to see Jesus rightly and find him in your own story because he's worth it. And that's good news, (laughs) y'all.